0: In this high-octane political moment, you get sucked into all the drama of it. It can be hard to step back and remember that there is policy being made. Policy that can shape how we run our households, make our budgets, go about our days. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And we start with a look at President Trump's executive order on welfare— It's called, quote, Reducing Poverty in America by Promoting Opportunity and Economic Mobility. LaDonna Pavetti from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities explains. So the executive order basically is an order
1: that um, instructs agencies um, within the government to review their policies, particularly around work And to identify places where they can make changes or that they can propose legislative changes that could potentially be made to strengthen work requirements, among other things.
0: More from her in a moment, but this idea of attaching a work requirement to welfare access isn't new. Enter Larry Townsend. He was the head of the welfare department in Riverside County, California, back in the late 80s. His philosophy?
2: Get
3: people into a job immediately.
0: Just don't worry about, are you trained enough or do you have enough education? Just get that job.
3: We're not going to train you for years. We're not going to send you to school for years. We're going to show you how to find a job.
0: Townsend spoke with my colleague Chrissy Clark for our podcast, The Uncertain Hour, back in 2016, reflecting on 20 years of welfare reform, his program, GAIN, Greater Avenues for Independence was all about moving people off of welfare and into a job, any job.
3: But at least your foot is in the door, and how well you succeed from there is up to you.
0: But there was a catch.
3: If you do not cooperate with us, we will take you off of welfare. Your children will still get money from us, but you won't.
0: Townsend's approach won much praise from welfare reformers and influenced the Clinton administration's welfare-to-work initiatives in 1996. In more recent years, Kansas and Maine have introduced similar programs, and according to a study from the Foundation for Government Accountability, work requirements work. But let's jump back to LaDonna Pavetti at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. She questions the FDA's research and the White House's reliance on that data. There's studies that have been done
1: both on SNAP, which is the food assistance program, also known as food stamps, and on TANF, the temporary assistance for needy families. And we had the same data that um, the, the Foundation for Government Accountability had. And just so you understand what they are claiming as success, four years later, there were basically 70% of the people who had left because of work requirements had either no income or had income below 50% of the poverty line. And 50% of the poverty line is basically $10,000 for a family of three. So we're talking about really low incomes or no incomes. And that, in our view, is not success. What you want is to really implement programs that will help people who already work but move in and out of work or work in very low-wage jobs to move to better jobs and work requirements have never been shown to do that and they end up having a very large number of people who lose benefits and have nothing as a replacement so our expectation is is if we have very large numbers of people subject to those requirements, we will have lots of people who have no resources to put food in the ta- on the table. If they lose their SNAP benefits, they will lose their health insurance and they will lose their housing assistance. Um, and those people will be people who are workers, they are people who have disabilities, and they are people who are caring for young kids.
0: You know, there is an example that my colleague Chrissy Clark did some great reporting on. Um, on Riverside, California, and in, in that county in the 1990s. And I guess I'm wondering, um, are there examples like Riverside of people successfully doing this, moving, you know, from welfare to work? If you follow what happened in Riverside, there's two different stories.
1: One is what happened in the early years of Riverside, and the other is what happens if you follow people over time. So in the very early years, what happened is you saw big increases in people going to work. But by the time you look at five years, pretty much all of those impacts go away. And the people who were not subject to those work requirements actually catch up. And there was a very small increase in earnings among people who were subject to them. The other Mm -hmm. thing that people don't really think about when they think about Riverside is what the cost of implementing that program was. So, What happened is um, Riverside invested money. They invested money in actually hiring job developers. They actually did put some people into education and training. So in 2018 dollars, if you actually look at the cost per person of what Riverside cost, it was about $3,300 $3,300 in today's dollars. If you look at it in the $1,999 when those were in originally, um, those expenses were calculated, it was about $2,000. So Per person? W- per person. So those costs are not costs that we have seen um, in estimates of what people are willing to spend. On programs, the other program that was also very successful during those early years was um, in Portland, Oregon. And when you look at the cost there, it's even um, a bit higher, and that's about four thousand dollars, and um, in today's dollars. So, if we use those as examples of what we can accomplish then we need to be ready to invest that amount of money. Otherwise, we are fooling ourselves to think that we can even get the short-term impacts that we got in Riverside and Portland if we um, plan to do this on the cheap.
0: You know, obviously, there was a big push uh, to move towards stricter work requirements back in 1996 under President Clinton. Um, That was something that, you know, had a... a fair amount of, frankly, bipartisan support at the time. Why do you think we are seeing um, this push for work requirements come back now? So
1: I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that we have seen a declining labor force participation and so there is an interest in trying to find a scapegoat, and public benefit programs are that. There are many things going on in the labor market that really have um, contributed to changes in who's able to get work and how much people are able to work and how, how long they work. And so I think that that's part of what's fueling it. I think it is also an ideological battle going on. Um, so I think there's lots of things that are are contributing to
0: That interest. Presumably, there um, are some cost saving arguments for this as well. Is there any sense that money would be saved uh, with stricter work requirements?
1: The only way money would be saved is if you kick a lot of people off of the programs um, who are unlikely to find work. So it is not savings because people will to be doing better. So the arguments are often the language is used as we want to put people on a path to um, a better life or move out of poverty. And I've been doing this work for 20 years. And in 20 years, we have not seen people move out of poverty um, because of work requirements. What happened in the early years of um, welfare reform is that we saw initial increases in people going to work and those faded by the end of five years. So that You just don't. The reality of what we know from what work requirements do does not square
0: with what people claim they will do. LaDonna Pavetti from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, thank you for talking with us. Thank you. For more reaction to President Trump's order, we called up a food bank in Washington state. My name is Peggy Marash,
4: and I'm executive director of Fish Community Food Bank in Ellensburg, Washington. Our food bank is uh, nearly 50 years old. We are a food pantry as well as a food bank, and we have uh, Open Table, which is a meals program we serve lunch three days a week and dinner on Saturday evening. In our experience here at FISH, it's the children and the elderly who eventually feel the brunt of of cuts and changes like this. Parents are struggling as it is, and when there are further cuts and further requirements put, on them, it just makes their life more difficult and therefore makes the child's life more difficult. We have people who come into our pantry because they've had an issue in their lives. And when that, they want nothing more than to have that issue resolved and to be back at work, whatever caused them not to be working. So, um, we, we, because we are a small community, we have the opportunity to see people and understand their stories and know what caused them to be here, and to celebrate with them when they no longer need to be here. I don't think there's anyone that we serve who um,
0: look, who really relishes the idea of asking for help. That was Peggy Marash from the Fish Community Food Bank in Ellensburg, Washington. And we'd like to hear from you. What are the questions or thoughts you have about President Trump's welfare proposal? What could it mean for you and your family? Do you worry about it, or do you support the change and agree that work is the way out of poverty? Email us, we're weekend at marketplace.org, or call our voicemail, 1-800-648-5114. And later in the show, we look at the proposed Farm Bill and what it could mean for the Food Nutrition Program, SNAP. SNAP <music>
5: We hear from listeners like you every day that Marketplace helps you understand the financial forces that affect your lives so you can make better decisions. Well, here's your chance to be part of our efforts to raise economic intelligence across this country. When you support Marketplace today, your donation will be matched dollar for dollar by our friends at the Candida Fund. As a nonprofit news organization, we're counting on your help so that we can grow and keep getting better. Become a Marketplace investor today. Whatever amount is right for you, it goes twice as far right now. Give online at Marketplace.org. And thanks.
0: You're listening to Marketplace Weekend, and when you're not listening to the show, what music do you tune into? Looking at the news, it seems like a lot of us love Cardi B, whose debut album just dropped. So here's this week's news by the numbers, the Cardi B edition, with Marketplace producers Sarah Menendez and Tony Wagner. Thanks,
5: Lizzie. Our first number is
0: 70,000.
5: That's how many dollars per weekend Cardi B is making for her Coachella appearances.
0: If 140k total sounds a little low to you, it's because the festival got a pretty sweet deal.
5: They booked Cardi B six months ago before she dropped her album Invasion of Privacy and before she reached her current level of success.
0: 300,000.
5: That's about how much Cardi B says she spent on the production of her Coachella sets. She's
0: playing a 35-minute set on Sunday of both Coachella weekends.
5: So with the hefty production fees, that means Cardi is actually losing money on her Coachella gig, about $160,000. Six.
0: Cardi B scored her sixth Billboard Top 40 hit when her new song, Be Careful, debuted this past week.
5: Cardi's song, Bodak Yellow, was number one on the charts for three weeks, and only one of her releases so far has failed to crack the Top 40.
0: Bodak Yellow made Cardi the first female rapper to top the Hot 100 chart on a solo track since Lauryn Hill in 1998.
6: And And that's that's how how Cardi B's B's Money moves. Moves!
0: This was the week, of course, that Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg went to Washington to testify to Congress about how Cambridge Analytica accessed user data. He was also asked about what role Facebook played in the 2016 elections, specifically Russian advertising and influence.
5: Congresswoman, we announced a change in how we're going to uh, review ads and, and big pages so that now, going forward, we're going to verify the identity and location of every uh, advertiser who's running political or issue ads or uh, and the the identities. We'd like you to get back to us with a timeline on that. (laughs) That that will be in place for these elections.
0: But it's not your average Russian buying ads or posting fake news. And we wanted to learn more about how most Russians do use the Internet and how the Kremlin controls that. So we brought in Nina Jankowicz, a global fellow at the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center. Welcome. Lizzie, thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about how people access and use the internet in Russia. We've been thinking about Russians on the internet from our perspective, but how do they do it?
7: Yeah, well there's about 76% internet penetration in Russia, which actually I was surprised to find out is pretty on par with the United States. Countries like the hmm. UK have about 90 or or a bit higher. But the US and Russia, I guess uh by, you know, virtue of our size and both population and geographically, are at about 76%. Most people access the Internet through their mobile phones. Mobile phone service is pretty cheap and fairly reliable in Russia. And I would say, in general, Internet is, is more widely used in more populous areas, in big cities or
0: um, more populous regions in Russia. You mentioned mobile phones, but I am curious, um, when people are getting online, are they sort of seeing free and unfettered Internet or, or are they dealing with controls from the Kremlin?
7: There are a lot of controls, and I would say that's, that's one thing that really characterizes the Russian Internet. Um, in fact, just this week in the Russian Duma, the parliament, they passed a first reading of a new law that would impose even more restrictions on the Russian Internet. And I think this is kind of to give them the legal cover they need to block any and all content at any time if they want to. Of course, Russians are pretty clever and, in general, uh, are able to use VPNs and things like that to get around these blockages. That, uh, that the Russian government puts in place. The Russian Internet sensor has blocked, I think, hundreds of thousands of, of websites, uh, and it has even blocked the
0: use of VPNs, but it hasn't been able to enforce that blockage yet. Well, yeah, one of the issues has been companies having their servers in Russia. I mean, this is this an issue with the messaging app Telegram. Um, they've been refusing to host their servers in Russia. And I'm curious, how, how have other companies dealt with this? So it's
7: been a bit of a a give and take here with the Kremlin. Uh, Famously, LinkedIn a couple of years ago refused to host their servers in Russia and was blocked. They were blocked kind of, I think, as a to make a spectacle out of them. Um, mm. Telegram, the FSB is actually asking for the encryption keys as well, uh, because this is wow. a, an encrypted messaging app. So uh, they're asking for the encryption keys, saying that um, a terrorist attack on the metro was planned using Telegram, and that's why they need those encryption keys. Telegram is refusing to give them to the FSB because each Conversation is encrypted end-to-end, so that would be millions of keys on every user's phone. It's actually technically impossible. Um, And now they're threatening to block Telegram uh, in in Russia. Now, there exist several VPNs already that are specifically for using Telegram. So it looks like this will be a pretty unenforceable ban.
0: When we in the U.S. think about Facebook and other social media sites, but often Facebook and Russia, we... I think discuss, you know, Russian troll farms and Kremlin-linked groups who are disseminating things on American social media. Um, is that happening on the Russian internet as well, or is that really directed outward?
7: Yeah, absolutely. It it happens on the Russian Internet as well. I would actually say that's where it got its start. Uh, In the early days of the Ukraine crisis, the Internet Research Agency was actually mostly directed at spreading propaganda and disinformation about what was going on in Ukraine, not only to Ukrainians, Russian-speaking Ukrainians, but to people in Russia as well. So this is something they perfected at home and in the near abroad uh, before they launched it here in the United
0: States. And are regular Russians on Facebook and, and, you know, Twitter and other sites like that? Or, are, you know, is, is that really the work of disinformation groups?
7: So they're, they're on Facebook and Twitter to a lesser extent. The most popular social media tool in Russia is YouTube, with about 63% of Russians using it. Um, and then after that come two Russian social media sites, Vkontakte, which means in contact, and is kind of like a, a Russian version of Facebook, actually, which was created by the same guy who, who made Telegram, Pavel Durov, so interesting oh. fact there. And then there's Adnaklasniki, which means classmates, and uh, that has about four 42 percent of the Russian Internet users on its site. So those are the most popular. Facebook comes in at about 35 percent. People do use it, but but it's nowhere near as popular as Kontaktya uh, as and on the Klasniki.
0: When you think about this stuff going forward, and certainly with the Duma changing rules and the FSB looking at this so carefully, what, what do you see the future holding for how people get on the Internet in Russia and how they communicate?
7: Well, I think one thing is clear with with all of these rules that the Duma is putting out uh, basically on a yearly, if not monthly basis, they call the Duma actually the crazy printer in Russia because (laughs) they are just like printing these laws out like crazy um, without uh, really any uh, thought about the consequences. They're just a real rubber stamp for whatever the government wants. Um, I think the idea is uh, to create a climate of fear on the Internet, or at, at the very least, to increase the costs for normal people. If you have to download and install a VPN, I mean, uh, that's one thing if you're a millennial and you are very adept with using a mobile phone. But for uh, for a lot of other Russians, that might be a bit difficult. Um, I know it would be difficult for, for some of the older folks in my family. Um, yeah. and, and not only that, there have been, I think... think, hundreds of arrests per year and criminal cases that are led by Roskomnadzor for charges of extremism or terrorist content that are just kind of extremely vague in Russian law and blanket applied to any content on Facebook, Vkontakte, Instagram. People are put in jail, literally, for liking things on Facebook. So people, I think, are just, they're scared to post anything. Um, Whereas in the United States, you know, the, the discussions we're having about social media are in order to preserve all our civil discourse online. Russia is doing everything it can to kind of squelch it and uh, ensure that people aren't going to engage in any sort of real
0: conversation or debate. Nina Jenkowitz from the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend, and it's the last weekend before Tax Day. Have you done yours yet? You've got until Tuesday to get it all done. Unless you file an extension, of course. The new tax law means there are many questions about what to expect next year, but it's causing confusion right now. So our producer, Paulina Velasco, checked in with some certified public accountants around the country, starting with Rachel Moncure. She's managing director at Ross and Moncure in Alexandria, Virginia. So we're getting a
7: lot of clients coming
0: in here, uh, and they're surprised that all of this press on all of these changes doesn't affect them for the year that they're filing at that time. Brian Thompson from Little Rock, Arkansas, says his clients are confused too.
1: Clients have sat in my office and said they've heard so many different stories in the media that they don't know whether their taxes are going up or down.
0: A big issue Thompson's hearing about?
1: Arkansas is part of the Bible Belt, and I've had many clients that donate money to churches and other charitable organizations. The other day, I was meeting with a client who asked me if they were going to be able to deduct their charitable contributions because they had heard that contributions were going were not going to be beneficial in the future.
0: To be clear, it's not that they won't have the option. It's just that fewer people may choose to itemize deductions because the new law doubles the standard deduction. In Virginia, Monk here says charities are concerned that because of this, contributions could decline. But beyond giving, it will also affect other decisions. It will have a huge effect in terms of the behaviors it incentivizes. Um, if, if you have a smaller mortgage and
7: the mortgage interest doesn't get you over the new standard deduction limit for a married couple, which is
0: $24,000, which is quite a lot of money, um, maybe it won't incentivize homeownership in the same way. Heading to San Antonio, Texas, CPA Jim Oliver says the changes in the law will affect how people file their taxes.
5: When we start looking at some people, we're realizing, oh, the $24,000 deduction for standard deduction is going to be substantially more than what they would be able to do itemizing.
0: So he and his clients are looking at new ways to take full advantage of the tax system.
5: Can we move contributions to a different year and double them up?
0: All of which means that as a CPA, Jim is doing a lot more mental aerobics right now.
5: It's so different in many ways that it all, it's almost requiring a shift in our mindset. You know, We used to have almost automatic answers to people, and now you have to stop and think it through a little bit more. The more I get into it, the more I realize, well, it's interesting every time you've got a puzzle to solve, and that's essentially what this is. And the, and the, and the puzzle for every person is different. The pieces fit together differently, and so there's a lot to think about every time we look at a client.
0: And then there's the question for business owners of what kind of corporation to be. Here's Arthur Auerbach in Atlanta, Georgia.
2: They're asking questions now. Do I keep the S-corp or do I switch to a C-corp or go back to an individual proprietorship? Which one of those options is going to give me the lower tax? Which type of entity choice should I pick? And that's not a very easy decision anymore.
0: Auerbach's also concerned about the way state and federal taxes are going to interact in his state.
2: The big problem here in Georgia is that you are stuck on Georgia, depending upon which method you pick for federal return, because the increase in the federal standard deduction means that they will get a benefit on the federal return, but in Georgia, that means they get stuck with the very, very low state standard deduction here.
0: These changes may seem stressful for those of us with little experience filing tax returns, but for our back, adaptation is part of the job.
2: What I like to tell people is when I started in practice, I was 6'6". Six, six. Now I'm 5'4". And 55 years of getting pounded on all over the place, that's what happens.
0: We'll be following all the ways the new tax law will affect our lives in the months to come. And if you want to share your experience with us, just email the show. We're weekend at marketplace.org. It's been a week since music streaming company Spotify went public, and it did so without the usual fanfare. It just started trading. But it got us thinking, what do we need to know about IPOs, initial public offerings? Especially if you're thinking, hey, I want to try and buy some of that stock. We got Bill Mann, director of small cap research at the financial services company The Motley Fool, to share five things you need to know about IPOs, starting with some basic advice.
5: The excitement around an IPO is generally speaking going to be pretty expensive for investors. These companies have never been public before. And it really takes time for a lot of management teams to get into the pattern of how they want to talk to investors, outside investors, funds, the big, the big institutional investors who come in. So it's generally our advice that you wait at least six months before you buy a newly public company.
0: And if you are eager to invest in one, here's the next thing you need to know.
5: It's an exclusive club, but it's not an exclusive club for the buyers. It's an exclusive club for the sellers. And so a lot of times when you have market volatility or you have the market that's dropped a lot, you'll hear of companies saying, hey, we were thinking about going public, but we're not going to do so because market conditions are bad. And what they're basically saying is that they feel like they're going to be able to raise less money for the sellers. So the thing to keep in mind is that an IPO is is not for your benefit. It is for the company's benefit at best, and then more usually it's for selling shareholders.
0: So say after you take this into consideration, you still want to buy a share of the IPO. Bill says maybe you should wait because...
5: One thing that you have to know about in the mechanics of an IPO is something called a lockup, which is this. When a company goes public, They have selling shareholders, and every other share that's held by the insiders is locked up for a period of 90 to 180 days. 90 days after the IPO, shares that weren't offered during the actual initial public offering go onto the market and are eligible to be sold. And what you see a lot of times is that day plus one is a whole lot of volatility, and sometimes you get really good pricing.
0: That brings us to the fourth thing
5: companies will generally put out a document called an S-1, which if you are going to participate in an IPO, you absolutely positively should read. An S-1 is a document that's filed with the SEC that basically the company says, we intend to go public, and these are the things that you need to know about how the company has performed to date, here's what the risks are, so on and so forth. But the thing that you have to know, even with companies that provide the best level of information, is that they have not had to provide the type of information that they're expected to as a public company to their private investors. And so the amount of information that you have on different segments within the business, levels of profitability is somewhat limited. And to me, that's a real risk. And the last thing you ought to know? If you feel like you missed an IPO, it is almost guaranteed that you're going to see a better price not even down the road, way down the road, in the next year. Since 1980, there have been over 8,000, 8,200 IPOs in the U.S. market. Over 70% of these have traded at some point in the next year below their IPO price. So if you're feeling impatient about jumping on an IPO, just recognize that in the long term, you're probably not missing out on much. And the great thing about the public markets is that they tend to be open – almost every day. So once a company is public, it, you know, it tends to stay public.
0: So there we have it. Five things you need to know about IPOs, initial public offerings from Bill Mann of The Motley Fool. And if there's some finance jargon that's confusing to you, let us know and we'll explain. We're weekend at marketplace.org. Earlier, we talked about welfare, but the money for one of the country's other safety net programs comes from a congressional bargain struck every five years in the Farm Bill. I'm talking about SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It's also referred to as food stamps. Usually, there's sort of a give and take between the members of Congress who want funding for farm programs and members who want to boost SNAP. Well, the first draft of this year's Farm Bill just came out. And to break it down, we have Catherine Boudreaux, the food and agriculture reporter for Politico. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Can you give me a sense of kind of the broad outlines of uh, this year's Farm Bill?
8: Yeah, the Farm Bill that was unveiled, one of the most contentious parts of it is the food stamp program, uh, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And basically what House Republicans would like to do is impose stricter work requirements on about 5 to 7 million uh, low-income Americans. So that's out of about, you know, 42 million who are on the program right now. Um, Many are already exempted from, would be exempted from these new stricter work requirements. You know, if you're uh, taking care of a child who's under 6 or you're disabled or elderly, Uh, But also they want to tighten eligibility Mm. to qualify for food stamps. Uh, And then they want to take the money that is saved from some of those proposals and put it back into state work and training programs because Republicans are really interested in getting people back to work uh, and, uh, you know, onto self-sufficiency is really what they're they're saying. That's definitely the most contentious part right now.
0: You know, traditionally, the Farm Bill is something that's passed every five years and there's sort of this bipartisan coalition of people who represent farm states, people who represent constituencies that use SNAP, and, and you know, people are able to come to an agreement. Um, does that seem to be the case this year? It, it feels a little thornier. It certainly
8: is more thorny. Uh, you know, we have long said that the Farm Bill is one of the last vestiges of Bipartisanship because of the coalition that you mentioned. It's usually a coalition of moderate Republican and Democrats who might be from rural America or have constituents in urban areas who are in need of food assistance. Um, and also, the Farm Bill is kind of a misnomer because it covers such a vast array of programs, whether it's rural development or research or, um, you know, developing foreign markets overseas, for example, it all yeah. funds those types of programs. So, um, yeah, right now it's just an increasingly partisan atmosphere in Washington, and the Farm Bill has kind of fallen into that
0: that trap. What happens then to some of these other programs? There's a lot at stake. I mean, farmers and ranchers look at this uh, for commodity subsidies and other things there. Uh, wh- what about that part of it?
8: Right. So the nutrition title of the farm bill covers, it accounts for about 80% of the spending. But of course, yeah, then there's this other 20% of spending that goes to, uh, you know, a lot of it goes to farmers and ranchers in the form of commodity subsidies, crop insurance. Also, if they need help adopting conservation practices on their land, it's, a kind of a symbol of certainty right now in such a rocky environment, especially with President Donald Trump's trade agenda. So yeah. anytime I talk to farmers and ranchers, their number one concern is trade because that's basically a lot of farmers, especially in like the livestock sector, uh, soybeans. They've spent like the last however many years kind of building up their production because there's a lot of demand from China. They need something, some hope of certainty, I think.
0: Well, how does trade play into this? I would imagine, as you mentioned, that there is real nervousness about the Trump administration's trade position for some of these folks who rely on exports. Yeah, certainly. And uh, the Agriculture Secretary, Sunny
8: Perdue, has said that lawmakers might want to, you know, take a look at the Farm Bill in Uh, see if it could help in times of of depressed farm economy as a result of trade retaliation. But actually, the USA has this kind of special tool. It's called the Commodity Credit Corporation. It's a very obscure agency. It's essentially kind of like a bank. I mean, they can borrow up to $30 billion from the Treasury at any one time. And I think that's the tool that they would use to stabilize the farm economy. Um, But of course, you know, they, I, they don't think farmers and ranchers really want that. I've talked to a lot who have said, I'd rather, you know, sell on the market instead of relying on a government payment.
0: The farm bill, you know, is in its infancy in this version right now. What are the things that you're watching as this moves forward?
8: Right now, we are watching how the right flank of the Republican Party in the House responds because they're kind of um, – they don't really like farm subsidies or the food stamp program. You know, not, you know, wholesale, yeah. don't like it. But of course, they're opposed to a large amount of spending or and would are interested in welfare reform, for example, just like House Speaker Paul Ryan. And so we're watching to see how they respond because right now, without Democratic support in the House, it's uh, unlikely
0: that the bill can pass if the House Freedom Caucus also isn't on board. Catherine Boudreaux, who covers food and agriculture for Politico, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend, and maybe you come home from work exhausted and down and say, ugh, my job is killing me. But one professor at Stanford's business school says that's not just a figure of speech. His name is Jeffrey Pfeffer, and he wrote a book about it called Dying for a Paycheck.
3: Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Okay, when you say work is killing us, do do you mean like really and truly killing us?
3: I mean really and truly killing us. Two colleagues in operations research and I estimate about 120,000 deaths in the U.S., and that's probably a conservative estimate, and about $190 billion in excess costs. And that's 120,000 deaths each year.
0: Yeah, you make the point in the book that uh, this would make workplaces the fifth leading cause of death in the United States. And I guess I wonder... um, I can absolutely see that when you are talking about work that requires physical labor or potentially dangerous conditions. But, you know, you expand this to white-collar professions as well.
3: Absolutely. I mean, there's... Uh, One story in the book is of an Uber engineer who made $170,000 a year who killed himself and his family attributes that to the workplace. Um, Everybody who's ever worked in investment banking understands, particularly if you're an investment banking intern and they don't let you sleep. I mean, there's this famous case of a Merrill Lynch intern who worked three days straight and then wound up dead, even though he was only 23 or 24 years old. One of the stories I tell in the book is of uh, the Palo Alto Medical Foundation, which is a physician's group here that sends mobile vans uh, to high-tech uh, campuses uh, because the engineers on those high-tech campuses believe they don't have time uh, to go to a doctor's office. And the person who runs that van service describes seeing 30-year-old engineers with 50-year-old bodies. So yes, this is a, this is a problem that extends um, across, by the way, across countries. One estimate is that a million people a year are dying from overwork in China, and it certainly extends across occupations.
0: But I guess there's some part of me that says, Okay, sure, I work in news, it's a stressful business, but a hundred years ago my options probably would have been, you know, sew in a factory somewhere, maybe be a teacher if I'm lucky, or die in childbirth. Is workplace stress so bad compared to what historical conditions have been? This is not the industrial revolution.
3: Well, if you go back probably, you know, 600 or 700 years, people were dying from the plague. So <laughs> people, people were always dying of something. Uh, but workplace stress is certainly worse than it was um, probably several decades ago. And even if you think about, you know, your example of 100 years ago, well, sewing in a factory was probably pretty bad. But if you worked on a farm, you at least had something that many people do not have today, which is control over your uh, job conditions. One of the things that predicts cardiovascular disease and death from heart attack is the absence of job control. So one of the things that has made work stressful is that people increasingly do not have much control over what they do and when they do it. You you can work hard, but as long as you have some control over what you do and when you do it and how you do it, that's not nearly as stressful as being micromanaged, something else that I think many people can relate to in today's world.
0: Why do you think this has gotten worse over the past few decades?
3: Number 1, uh, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago when economic times got tough, people got laid off. Now, people are getting laid off in these in the, regularly and routinely. So that's one source of um of increasing economic insecurity. Another source of economic insecurity is that we now have these software programs that schedule people. In retailing, they're quite prominent, but in banking and some other industries as well. And so from one week to the next, you do not know when you're going to work or how many hours you're going to work. So therefore, you do not know your income, number one. And number two, it's very hard for you to plan for dealing with other family responsibilities when you don't know what your shift is going to be. So that's, certainly has made life more stressful
0: you are talking about some very systemic things and and really big picture questions if you had to start somewhere instituting you know the baby step solution where would you start
3: If I were an employer, I would try to do what the good good employers are currently doing, which is to say, am I managing my workplace in a way that people at the end of the day leave feeling at least as good, if not better, than when they came to work? Am I taking care of them? Am I providing a workplace that provides them social support? Uh, Do I have an environment in which people have friends at work uh, so that they can get the social support, which helps them overcome their stress level? Am I offering them benefits? Am I offering them policies to permit them to balance their work and family obligations? Um, I was just with a CEO the other day, and he told the story, a young woman working in their Philadelphia office, her husband, who was also quite young, died unexpectedly. And what did they say to that person? Number one, they were there to provide food and babysitting assistance, um, which, of course, provides a signal that the organization cares about her. They told her, take as much time off as you need. And by the way, we will pay you for all that time off. You know, they will make sure that there are benefits available to help people deal with their family obligations. So you create a supportive environment in which people feel valued and cared for. It's what organizations used to do and what a few of them still do do, even in today's world.
0: Jeffrey Pfeffer, Professor of Organizational Behavior at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I want to shift to a very different story about work now. One that I'm guessing is about some people's dream job. It's part of our occasional series, How to Be a Blank. And in honor of baseball season, it's How to Be an Umpire. And some basics. Yes, you need good eyesight. Yes, women can be major league umps too. And no, you can't have a favorite team. Now I'll hand it off to the expert.
6: My name is Rich Reeker. I am the director of umpire development for Major League Baseball. I started with Little League in the St. Louis area, high school ball. My father had read an article in the paper that they needed umpires. I had done some officiating in the St. Louis area and uh, went out and worked my first game when I was 11 years old in St. Louis. I guess it's been in my blood. Uh, I actually met my wife at an umpire meeting. She's the umpire and uh, she gave it up a few years afterwards, but I stuck with it and went to umpire school finished my college education uh, in bits and pieces after that and worked in the minor leagues and went on to the major leagues. If you have good judgment, you're responsive to constructive criticism and you can react well under pressure situations. You know, those are the basic uh, fundamentals of umpiring. After that, there are two professional umpire schools that you have to go through. Those are the two gateways. And then the top students are selected to go into the minor leagues. Basically, you start with a rule session, and you have to get your nose in the rule book to show good rules knowledge. You're tested on those rules at both schools, and there's a tremendous amount of field work and ball and strike work in the batting cages. So the average day starts at about 8 a.m. and winds up around 6, where you go back, have dinner, and study. But after five weeks, uh, the best candidates are sorted out, and the best prospects move on to the evaluation course. At the major league level, we scout at AAA. By time they get to AAA, these candidates have been in the minor leagues for six or seven years and generally have the skill set of handling pressure situations. We then look at them possibly for a fall league in Arizona, which is the next step for a AAA umpire. After the fall league candidates are vetted out, then we look at those umpires to possibly go to major league spring training. And after that, they fill in at the major league level for vacations and injuries. Uh, our average hires in the major league, we hire maybe two or three per year there are 76 full-time major league umpires that average career is about 27 years at the big league level it comes out to an average in the last 10 years we've hired 30 people the biggest difference between a major league umpire and a minor league umpire is that when a routine play becomes non-routine the major league umpire can make the adjustment to try to see the play clearly it's really handling the pressure. We know that that umpire has seen tens of thousands of pitches and thousands of plays and has the reps necessary to succeed at the major league level. You work home plate in the major leagues every fourth game. They rotate clockwise, so obviously an umpire would go from home plate to third base to second base to first and so on. So basically there's one kind of umpire that does many jobs. The starting salary at the major league level is over $100,000. And then it climbs up with uh, annual increases to where you're making a very good living with very good benefits. You know, we like to say, you know, unfortunately one team loses every night. Fortunately one team wins. And I'd like to think we as umpires try to win every night. The umpires are really a third team out there competing just as well. The goal of their successful competition is to have a game that was fairly officiated and as least amount as possible attention drawn to the umpires as you can have so uh, we like to go unnoticed and sometimes that's not always possible but when a situation does arise we like to handle it as as professionally as possible i enjoyed every day out there and it was a lot of fun getting that call uh, in chicago to say i was hired to the full-time staff It's a phone call you never forget. You've attained an ultimate goal, and uh, I think that's probably my biggest memory. It's a great career. You get to see the country. You get to meet a lot of neat people, and you're part of baseball, and I don't think you could ask for anything better than that.
0: Rich Reeker is the director of umpire development for Major League Baseball, and that piece was produced by Eliza Mills. Got a job you've always wondered how to do? Let us know. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org. Next week, I'm returning to Puerto Rico to report on the recovery from Hurricane Maria and especially what it means for education and housing. But in the meantime, we'll bring you a show with some of our favorites from the past few months on food deserts. We also found that some of the smaller, what I would consider convenience stores or liquor stores were actually being labeled as proper grocery stores and supermarkets, even though they weren't. They clearly weren't that at all. And our story of supply and demand told through the movement of rescue dogs. That's next time on Marketplace Weekend. And that is it for this week's Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Peter Balanon-Rosen, Eliza Mills, and Paulina Velasco. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer, and Charlton Thorpe is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.